Good morning slash good afternoon. We're at that transition point. So glad to see everyone here today. Uh, we are going to be in Matthew 17. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there or a device, whatever it may be. So we'll be there in just a few moments. Now, this last year has given us many opportunities to learn new things, to try new things, to um, just to process uh, new realities. And Many of you have taken up new hobbies, have tried baking new things, creating new things, languages, you know, all sorts of different things. Uh, I wish I could say that I had something really, you know, impactful and different that I've tried this year and, and has radically transformed me, uh, but that's not really the case. But like just about every single one of us, if not every single one of us, we have had many, many days as a family where we just need to go, especially at the stay at home. Like we just had to get out of the house, Right. We've all been there. One evening or afternoon, we were at one of those points, and I said, we're going for a walk. Let's go for a walk. I said, I'm not telling you where we're going, but we're going for a walk. And so with great enthusiasm, the kids just, you know, joined along. Uh, not really. Uh, and we started walking, and they're guessing where we're going. And nope, nope, nope. And as we started to approach the location we were heading to, I saw their faces change, and they're like, no, we're not going there. And we were walking to the cemetery near our house. That was our family activity that day. We needed to get out. We were going to walk around a cemetery. And so I had to make it an interesting event for them. So as we walked around, I said, I want you to find the most recent gravesite, and I also want you to find the oldest. So with that, there was a little bit more enthusiasm. So that afternoon slash evening, we spent our time walking around the cemetery looking at gravestones, talking about friends and family that we know of the people that are buried there. We talked about life and we talked about death. Not your typical uh, family activity, but it was definitely a COVID activity. Just a few months later, we stood there once again in that same cemetery, the four of us and our family, with our neighbor and a few other neighbors as we said goodbye to one of our neighbors. She had passed away and we gathered in that same cemetery. And in that time, we spoke words about her, of her life, and we shared with tears and we, we shared with laughter. And while we were standing there, I read this passage to the small group of us. And I think this is a passage that Paul probably said at a funeral at some point as well. From First Thessalonians, he said, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. I just want to pause there for a moment. Is that here Paul is saying there is something beyond this life, beyond this now that you have. And he's saying, I want you to know this because we all grieve and we should grieve. I think this passage is misread a lot of times when you have a loved one who passes away and, and someone's like, oh, they're in a better place or, oh, they're, they're great. It's like, this is a time to grieve. We need to grieve. We're expected to grieve. It's part of the healing process. And so it says, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So we grieve with a hope, with a forward-looking reality that there is more than just the here and now, more than what we experience 
what we can touch or see or smell or hear, that there is hope beyond. And again, this is not wishful thinking. This is confident expectation in the one who gives hope, Jesus. Jesus, too, wanted us to know that this life was not the end. In John 14, he said this, In my father's house, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus is saying, I have a place that's prepared for you. So that when this life ends, there's a place if you have trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul, too, wanted us to know again as he was writing to the church at Philippi. In Philippians 3, he said this. He said, but our citizenship is in heaven. So let's just pause for a moment. We may have citizenship here in this country or another country, but our true citizenship as followers of Christ is in heaven. And Paul continued to say is that we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, even death, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So as followers of Jesus, we're citizens in heaven. As followers of Jesus, we may reside here, but our home is elsewhere. As followers of Jesus, our body will be transformed. For now, we have this body. And that transformation of a body, many of you are like, amen, amen. There is a place prepared for us as followers of Jesus, but we're not there yet. And there's a place in the presence of the Lord, but now we just see in part. As followers of Jesus, we need to know that this is not the end. This is not the end. There is so much more than just this life here and now. I invite you to, in your mind, come to a place that you consider maybe one of the most beautiful places. Think, especially next to water. So think of a place next to water that you would consider one of the most beautiful sceneries that you've ever seen. Maybe it was an ocean or a sea. Uh, Maybe it was a lake, large lake, small lake. Maybe it's a pond. I want you to get this place in your mind. I want you to picture the beautiful water. I want you to picture the beautiful scenery. Picture the trees. Maybe they're palm trees if it's a little more tropical. Maybe it's pine trees if it's up north. Picture this scene. Have you ever been in this place and you thought about the vastness of the world before you? I mean, even if you're next to a pond, as you think about the life that lives in there, If you're next to an ocean, you think of everything that is living in this water. And you only see the surface. You see the beauty around you. You see just what's there. And it's amazing. But there's so much more life at a depth. Again, even the local lakes and ponds of the fish and the turtles and the frogs that are there, the life that is there. It's even these moments that many times I I pause, and especially if I'm in an ocean, thinking about the fact that there's sharks and there's whales just beyond what I can see. It's intimidating, and it shows how small I am in the vast creation. I think in the story that we're going to read today, this passage that we're going to read from Matthew 17, maybe this is the way that Peter and James and John felt in the presence of Jesus and what happened. So let's look at Matthew 17. Matthew 17 is recorded this way. 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So he left some disciples behind at the foot of the mountain, and he takes these three up top. And anytime you see a mountain in scripture, there's usually something significant that happens there. There's usually this transformative reality, something significant in the lives of the individuals that are there. And this story is no exception. Verse two says this, then he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. There is this radical reality that's changing. So for the longest time, Jesus has been with these disciples and the disciples are looking at Jesus as their rabbi, their teacher. And they have witnessed Jesus do some miraculous things and some amazing teaching. But here, there's something beyond what they can describe happening. He's transfigured. And the word in the original language for transfigured there is the Greek word, it's, it's uh, where's it at? Is metamorphal. Is it this word that we get our word metamorphosis from? Right? To, to have this change from the inside out. This is what's happening to Jesus. Is that Jesus being fully human and fully God in this moment, the, the revelation of his deity of being God is being revealed. See, we can relate to passages like Philippians 2, where Jesus empties himself, where he becomes like a servant, he becomes like a human. This is this kenosis idea. But this, what Jesus is doing is becoming fully God in this moment, that he was fully God in this moment, but this revelation of him becoming fully God. His face is shining like the sun. His, his clothes are white. I mean, Moses, I believe Nick mentioned Moses earlier here today, is that Moses, when God passed by him, his, his face radiated because he was near God. But with Jesus, his face shone like the sun. I don't recommend looking at the sun, but when you, you do, it's one of those things of like, oh, you can't just stare at it. There's this glow that's going on. And here's Jesus' face has been changed. And not only is Jesus changed, the disciples are being changed. Verse 3. It says, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So not only has Jesus changed, here comes Moses, the giver of the law, and here comes Elijah, the prophet. So with Jesus, the fullness of God, comes the law and the prophets. And Peter, James, and John are going like, what is unfolding? Like this, this moment of what is going on? And then the three of them talk. Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Then Peter tries to talk. There's a Peter in every group. And what I mean by a Peter is that something happens, and it might be uncomfortable or different, but the Peters in the group, they need to say something to break the tension, right? You know what I mean? It's like there's this awkwardness, and someone in your group or family makes a joke to break the tension. If you don't know who that is in your family, it's probably you. You're probably the Peter. But Peter does this. Check this out. This is unfolding. Peter said to Jesus in verse four, Lord, it is good for us to be here. That's all he could come up with. Like, yes, it is good. Yep. And then he says, if you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So not only is he trying to break the ice, he's like, let me do something for you, Jesus. Let me, let me build something. Peter's all in. He just, he wants to be involved. And I love scripture. 
It says, while he is still speaking. So just, he's cut off. They're not even paying attention to what he's saying. A bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said this, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is an amazing passage right here. This cloud comes upon them. And I believe this transfiguration is as much for Jesus as it is for the disciples. Because if you remember what we talked about with temptation last week, when the tempter went to Jesus, what did he say to him twice? If you are the son of God, then he was tempted. Here, the father says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Jesus is affirmed in this moment. He had been tempted. He's affirmed in this moment. Jesus, you are the one. You're, you're, gonna, you're going through with this. And then for the disciples, this instruction, listen to him. Listen to him. This is for us to hear too, is that we are to listen to Jesus. When Jesus teaches, we're to listen to him. And at this point, if Peter, James, and John are not on board, they're never going to be on board. They're witnessing this. This is unfolding. And this is their response in verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. And it seems like a really appropriate response. Verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus. In this moment, in this radical moment that they probably really couldn't put words to, this transfiguration of Jesus, they hit the ground out of fear. And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't stand back and say, get up. He goes to him like he did at the man at the pool. We talked about a number of weeks ago. Get up. Get up. He's inviting them. He's saying, don't be afraid. See, in this situation, there's circumstances that are unfolding in their life. The transfiguration is happening. These circumstances are real. And Jesus is saying, I am here. Do not be afraid. Get up. And in this season, as we move towards Easter, we all have circumstances that we are facing in life. Some that we would simply label as good. Others we'd label as bad. We all have circumstances. And like the transfiguration, Jesus is there saying, do not be afraid. Get up. And I love how Jesus touched them, this gentle touch, and in this invitation to come and to walk with him of his presence. See, Jesus is inviting them to see through the situation and to see him. And I think Jesus is inviting us in this season to see through circumstances and see him. Let's continue on with this passage before we jump into anything else here. Verse 9, it says, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. I think in this moment, the disciples are like, don't worry about it. No one's going to believe us anyways. Like, there's just no way what happened that we can fully describe. And they have this conversation, which makes very little sense to us, but a first century Jew would, would understand these next four verses. Verse 10, the disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore the things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but have done to him everything they wished. 
In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So in that moment, they're like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. But we in 2021 are going like, Elijah, John the Baptist, what is, what is he talking about? So what the disciples are asking Jesus is saying, if you are the Messiah, which evidently because of what just happened, you're the Messiah, did we miss Elijah? Because Elijah was supposed to be the forerunner to you coming. And what Jesus tells them is that, well, Elijah came, but it was John the Baptist, like in the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist came as the forerunner introducing me. Jesus is saying, Elijah, from Malachi, I'm sorry, the prophets, let me rewind here. I jumped ahead of myself. As the disciples were pointing to Malachi 4, where it said this, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So they were waiting for him to come, and the Jewish people are still waiting for Elijah to come. If you've ever been to a Passover meal, a Seder meal, you most likely either opened the door for Elijah to come in, you left a chair open for Elijah, or you left a cup on the table for Elijah. Is this anticipation of Elijah bringing the Messiah. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm here. I'm ushering in the kingdom. I am the Messiah. So today, why in the world are we talking about the transfiguration? You may be asking yourself that question. How does this tie in to anything in my life How does this tie into where we're at, what we're talking about moving to Easter? Well, I believe that in order to understand the transfiguration, you need to understand the cross. And in order to understand the cross, you need to understand the transfiguration. Because if we just look at the transfiguration or we just look at the cross, we're simply looking at circumstances, not seeing what God is doing through them. So for example, if we just take a snapshot of these two situations, the transfiguration, we would say the transfiguration is great. The cross, not good. So if we didn't have any framing details, we would just simply have that because we look, well, the transfiguration was the glory of God, but Calvary, the cross, is suffering. Transfiguration, there's a cloud and light. The cross, Calvary, is darkness. The transfiguration is white clothing where Calvary is hardly any clothing on Jesus. Transfiguration, and Peter's like, hey, I'll build you a tent. Calvary, Peter's denying Jesus. Transfiguration, God says, I am well pleased with you, Jesus. I love you. At Calvary, it's silence. And then who Jesus is hanging out with at the transfiguration is Moses and Elijah. At Calvary, it's criminals. And so I want to encourage us today is that if we just take a snapshot, we have a half picture of what God is doing, of either one of those. And so often we as human beings, we falsely believe that circumstances define who we are or who others think we are. I mean, looking here, the circumstances say, Yep, definitely the Son of God. Looking at circumstances here, people look at it and be like, nope, not the Son of God. We, of course, have a fuller picture and understand this, but these are circumstances at the moment that they're looking at. See, we think our circumstances define us just in a static way. And we think if we change our circumstances, then we're going to be happy. Our longings and our desires will change if we change our circumstances. So if I move, or if I get a new job, or if I get into a new relationship, or if I go to a new church, or if I do this, or whatever it is, I get a new haircut, whatever it is, I don't really need to get a new haircut. 
is that this thing is like, we think that's going to change our deepest longings within us. Paul David Tripp, he said these words, if you're following along with our Lenten devotional journey to the cross on day seven, he said, somehow, in some way, every human being is searching for paradise. We look for it in the children we parent. We look for it in the houses we buy. We look for it in our marriages. We hope vacation will give us just a little bit. We envy people who we think have found it, although no one has. We think if we just have a little more power, we will find it. We hope another academic degree will be the pathway to it. We move to a new city, hoping more of it will be there than in the last. We hop from church to church, hoping we'll find it there. We're emotionally exhausted, but we keep searching, right? We keep looking at our circumstances. We just change our circumstances, then everything's going to change. He says this, so you have a choice. You can give yourself to a constant chorus of situational and relational complaints, making sure you let God and the people around you know that you're not happy at all with the way things are. You can be critical, judgmental, and demanding, making your relationships toxic and yourself unbearable to be around. Or you can stay committed to the delusion that somehow you will find or create paradise. You will try to control what you cannot control and require what will never be delivered. You can be on the constant move, regularly leaving situations, locations, and relationships because they did not measure up and investing in a new place with new people in the hope that it will deliver. You'll end up lonely, disappointed, and alienated, but you'll probably keep looking. Now, none of these options will produce spiritual, emotional, or relational health in you, and they surely won't leave you with restful joy or contentment. So what he's saying there is that we search for joy and contentment and we search for them in our circumstances. We just look at the circumstances for face value and we try to interpret them just for what they are. I want you to consider as we think of circumstances of two different ways of looking at them. One being as a picture and another way of looking at our circumstances as a window. So if I were to take a picture of the outdoors and I were to put it on that wall right there, we would look at that picture over there of the outdoors and it would be static and never changing. It would be a scene of the outdoors. It would be something that we would see and we would interpret as it is. Or if this was an exterior wall and I were to cut out a hole in it and put a window in there, there would be times that it would seem static, but there would be life unfolding beyond the window beyond what's really there. And there's a different way to look at our circumstances, either as a static reality that we judge as is, or as a window beyond what we appear to see, to see what's unfolding beyond that reality. Let me give you a couple of examples. I want you to think of where you live. You can see where you live, whether it's an apartment, condo, a house, whatever it is. You can see it as small or big, nice or, or needing repairs. You can see it as a picture for, for what it is, the circumstances of the reality. Or you can see it as a window, as a place of hospitality, as a place of love, as a place of growth, as a place of connection. Now, is your house still big, small, messy, brand new, whatever? Yeah, 
but you're seeing beyond these circumstances to what could be. Your marriage, think about this, if you're, in a, if you're married, you can say, well, I'm happy or I'm unhappy. I don't really know what that means, but we sometimes just leave it at that. Your marriage, you can look at it as a window, just as these simple defining terms, or you can look at it through, like, through a window of what is my perceived happiness or my perceived unhappiness doing in me? What is it refining in me? What is it pointing out? I so often say that marriage is one of the greatest indicators of any level of selfishness within you because it just peaks its ugly head all the time. Of, I want this, I want this, but it's about self-serving the other. So my marriage, it's not about happiness or unhappiness. It's about looking through it of how can I be refined and changed and pour into another person. Your church is that you can have this list of, and my church needs to do this, 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 and do this for me and have this for my kids. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? This color of carpet, whatever. That's the serve me mentality, which is just kind of face value, the picture of I like it or I don't. Or you turn it over and it's like, how do I serve through the church? How do I serve others? As I've said in the other services, there are people that are hurting immensely in this service, in the other services, and watching online. And we need to serve and love one another. It's not just about my checklist, the picture, versus here's an opportunity for me to serve through the church, to serve other people, to love other people, and also to be refined in that moment. Another one, last one here, is, is health. Is that I think about my grandma Karbasiki, my mom's mom. She had cancer when I was a teenager. It ended in her death. Just at surface level, it's horrible, painful. But I saw how my grandma Karbasiki used her cancer as a window to point out Jesus in her life, to pour into us, me as a teenager, to, to pray for us, to pour into her kids, to pour into her nurses and her doctors. It wasn't just a static reality. It was an opportunity for her to see through the situation, the circumstances, and be transformed and allow others to be transformed. This is the same way with the transfiguration and the cross. We see through the transfiguration, the disciples saw, oh, this is God. And God's doing a work through Jesus. For the cross, we look at the cross not as a, an item of torture, but as an item of hope. That not only did Jesus die a horrendous death on there, but he gave us salvation and eternal life and hope because of his act. We see through it like a window. See, we too are to be transformed, to experience this metamorphosis. Jesus was physically transformed. Hear what Paul said in Romans as we wrap up here. In Romans 12, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Here we go. Let's listen for our word in here. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Experience this metamorphosis by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. How we see things, not just as a picture, as a static reality, of judging it as good or bad or what I want or what I don't want. But what is God transforming, renewing our mind in the situations around us? I mean, think about the things that you complain about that you don't like. What could God be doing in you and through you in these situations? Think about difficult relationships that are around you. 
Every single one of us has difficult people around us. What is God trying to teach me in this situation? In job, in school, whatever it is. It's not just about the circumstances. It's about seeing through them. This renewing, this transforming, this changing of our mind. Because it says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we're in this season of transformation, this, this season of changing, of seeking what God's will is, of identifying sin and brokenness within us. As believers, it's a time to be transformed for this genuine change to take place in our life. As we close, I want to I invite you back to that lake, that ocean, that sea, the pond, wherever it was that you thought of earlier. like the world is on the shore. And we admire the beauty of the world around us. We admire and appreciate what's there. But that's, that's just settling for what is. See, Jesus calls us all to take a step into the water. He says, come and follow him. He talks about transformation, about life change, about, about heart change, about renewing our mind. And what we do is we're invited and some people stay on the shore, but some just dip their toes in and they're like, I'm in the water. You are in the water. You're being called by Jesus. And that's a place to start. And then you go a little bit further, you get up to your knees. You're like, Whew, it's getting kind of cold, right? Up to your waist. Some people will get in and swim by making sure that you can still touch the bottom, right? You don't want to go too deep. And there's others spiritually that, that just dive. And they're swimming. They're out. They're experiencing what is at a surface level, but there's also a depth of being in that water. There's a freedom. There's, a, there's even a, a certain level of buoyancy in there, of being held up, not by your own power or your own will, but by the Spirit of God around you. This Lenten season, I invite all of us, if we're on the shoreline and Jesus is saying, come forward, that we take that step of faith into relationship with him. If we've just got our toes in, let's go up to our knees. Let's go up to our waist. Start swimming. Let's start diving. Jesus is calling us toward him. He's calling us not just to look at the circumstances, but to look beyond them. To hear his voice saying, come and follow me. This is a matter of trust, it's a matter of faith, it's a matter of belief, and it's a matter of responding to the Spirit of God. And for those things, I want to pray for us as we close here. So would you join me in prayer? Father God, in this season, you are inviting us all up this mountain. You're inviting us to come near to you. Lord, you're inviting us to see what you're doing, not just now in the circumstances, but beyond them. So Lord, whatever circumstances there are that each person hearing these words are facing, the heaviness of them, the challenge of them, the joy of them, whatever it may be, Lord, help us not just to settle for just a shallow surface level of what you want to do. 
God, may we be a people who, who are willing to dive deep, to, to trust you, to lean on you. God, to be changed in this time. So Father God, for each person, I pray for an increase of faith. Lord, I pray for an increase of belief in the season. Lord, I ask right now in faith that, God, whatever strongholds or temptations or sin that are upon uh, each one of us in this room, God, that they would be broken in Jesus' name so that we can experience the fullness of life that you intend for us now, but also with that reminder of looking beyond that this life is not the end. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Jesus, that you would do a mighty work in us and through us. Father, I thank you that you go with us. Lord, that you are the source of all hope, that you are the source of all that is good. And so, Father God, like the disciples, we want to stand up, got to experience your grace and your compassion and your love. And God, may we multiply that in the worlds that we walk, God, whether it's our own home or something beyond our walls. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the hope that you give to us, this confident reality that there is more to life than just this. So Lord, we speak blessing over each person. Lord, thank you that you are filling us, that you are changing us, that you're walking with us. We pray this all in Jesus' strong and powerful name. Amen. 